to share with you before because there's a, a great impact that he has had on my life. And if you've not been here, I hope this will, this will matter in your heart. If you, uh, if you have been here, I hope that this will resonate with you. If not, uh, you should really look this guy up because I think you'll be encouraged by him. So without doubt, one of the most influential people in my ministry has been a guy named William Carey because of the story of what God did through him. It's pretty amazing. Carey was uh, an 18th and 19th century. He kind of was serving at the turn of the century. Baptist missionary, an English guy, um, who spent his days serving the people of India overseas. And amongst missionary types, he became uh, famous because of a prayer challenge that he issued in one of his most famous sermons. And uh, if you're a student of church history, you'll, this statement will resonate with you. He has said that we should expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And this was a very powerful statement for him because it was much like what we're reading about in the life of Paul, where Paul is not just telling us something about hardship and pain and joy. He's actually going through it. Very similar premise with Carrie. Um, he was serving in a very hard area of the world. And because of his tireless efforts, uh, not only did he see people come to Christ, there was a devout love that he had for people, and he was very faithful to sharing the gospel and helping people to experience Jesus' grace. He was also instrumental in, in creating societal change, which is a big thing at our church. That's why we're going to talk next week about the way that you have encouraged and blessed people. We want God's people to be agents of change in places where there is darkness in the world. We are, we are vessels of light that God calls us to calls us to kind of light up the darkness no matter where we go. And so in a very important way, he helped to bring an end to two uh, very problematic religious practices. They will need no explanation as far as why they are problematic. Uh, the first was infant sacrifice. This was going on in that culture at that time. And the second uh, was a little known but pretty problematic practice called sati. And in case you don't know what sati is, uh, this was a social practice at the time uh, where uh, I am married to my wife, and when I die, what happens is part of the religious culture is they put me on a pyre, light me on fire, and then my wife, who is alive, is also burned alive with me. This was the way that it happened. Women had really no rights in this culture, and so he really stood against what was an incredible injustice against uh, women in that day, and he did it in the name of Jesus. And so he's living this statement out, okay, and creating amazing change, or at least God is using him to create change. And so his prayer challenge, this declaration... Um, becomes a prayer now that many Christians, especially those of us that have embracing the mission of God, make no mistake about it, even though we're a church plant in America, um, we believe that we have a missionary identity. We feel that like we have the same rhythms that people all over the world have embraced to help people understand Christ in our local context. And so this becomes a bit of a battle cry for people, this prayer. And it's more than just a set of words. Most prayers begin as words, but when God grabs hold of them and they are sincere from our heart, something very powerful happens in those words. When people believed and started committed to, committing to this statement and praying and believing it, that they were going to expect great things from God, and that because of that they were going to attempt great things for God, it started changing people's faith. The people who embraced this, you can really say had, they had like a faith game changer. And this is the power of a, of a prayer, one very specific one here. But nonetheless, prayer is an important discipline. And Paul is going to pray for us in the next set of verses we're about to study. His prayer that we're going to look at is much like Carrie's prayer, not necessarily in what we're praying for, but in the, in the request that he is bringing to God. And so today we're going to continue our series, Finding Joy in Life Circumstances, by looking at Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And this is a, a sandwich prayer, if you will. It's kind of like the bottom loaf, or the bottom slice of bread on this incredible statement that Paul has given us in last week's talk. So these verses contain a prayer that Paul gives to God on our behalf. You've probably noticed Paul prays a lot for God's people. 
We actually looked at one of his prayers in our New Year's talk. But the point of Paul's prayers, prayer in general, is that when deeply believed and applied to our hearts, they have the power to, to become game changers in our lives. They have the power to, to invite God to work in ways that he is at, he's waiting for us to ask. And so here's how. Last week, Paul tells us, right, that joy is available to us in any circumstance in life. Because remember, key statement to this series, joy is not dependent or derived from circumstances. That's the big step, the, big, big, the first big truth. If you seek joy from circumstances, there are times when they will give you joy. But there are going to be more times when they do not. So joy is not rooted in circumstantial realities. It's, it's rooted in recognizing the powerful presence of Jesus working in our lives during those circumstances. Give thanks for the circumstances, no matter where you are, but give more thanks for the fact that you are rooted in Jesus no matter what you're dealing with. So today, he adds to that promise by telling us uh, he wants us to get to the place. He's literally saying, like, I don't want you to just hear this, like, hear that you can have Jesus' joy. I want you to start believing that you can have Jesus' joy to the point where you experience it in your life. This is going to be half of what we talk about today. He tells us that God wants us to know him in such a way, such a deep way, that it causes us to fully experience the promised blessings and benefits of being in Jesus. And so the foundation of Paul's prayer to know God like this is rooted in us grasping a very simple but important truth. And if you have read any of Paul's other epistles, you'll know that he he uses this statement, knowing God, a lot. And then he always has kind of an object of what that knowledge looks like. And so here there's a very particular object of knowledge. As well as in the Old Testament, we see that knowledge of God is a very important Uh, it's a very important way that we understand and grow in Jesus or grow in God in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, Paul links these statements together a lot. And so the, the simple but important truth is there is a very real difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. In Paul's circumstances, it's, it's a very different thing to say, I know Jesus's joy is out there, even though I'm in prison, falsely accused of a, of a crime. I know that's out there. And it's another thing to know that to the place where he's actually experiencing Jesus's joy in the middle of that trial. So let me reread Philippians 1, 9 through 10 to you. And this is my prayer, okay? He says, joy is available last week, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Maybe you have a translation that says discernment. It's the same idea there. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now, in this teaching, Paul says the key to experiencing joy in your life is by having a true knowledge of God's love in your heart. Now, in that short statement, Paul makes an important connection between what he's just taught us about, about how, how God has given him joy. Right? Last week, we learned that Paul is aware of his circumstances. He is not naive to the fact that he is in jail. He is not naive to the fact that he has been imprisoned for serving Christ. And he is not naive to the fact that, as it stands, he is waiting to find out whether or not he's going to be executed for his proclamation of the gospel. He does not not know that that is going on. Yet what's happening here is he is not focusing on the circumstance. That is not what is defining him. He is, he is focusing on how God's grace is sustaining him in his life through the circumstance. In two very important ways. You can hear, listen to the sermon if you want more info on this, because we talked about this last week, but just that we frame this, the two ways that God is sustaining him, that we read about in verses 1 through 8, is in his partnership in the gospel with the Philippians. So in other words, the work of God, God, he's seen God move in people that he has ministered to, is sustaining him. 
And one of the ways that God is working in the people that he has ministered to is that they are loving and caring for him and supporting him. So it's, this, it's, this, it's like a cornucopia of God's grace, like going all over the place. And at the end of the day, it is giving Paul the fuel not only to have faith in a season where he should be without it, but he's also now serving in the name of Jesus. He's giving in a season where he should be getting from people. That's why we have this letter. And so right on the heels of, of, of this, right, right on the heels of showing us that Jesus' joy is available to us in any situation of life, Paul immediately prays that we would not just hear that, but that we would get to the place where we actually experience that. And he reminds us that all of Scripture, right, everything that we read about in Scripture, it's happening for the reason of knowing God. All the truths recorded in Scripture are given to us so that we can not just read stuff about God, but so that we can know and deeply experience who God is. And so inherent in this kind of encouragement, know God, right? He wants to know you, know him for real. Is, the other side of this is that there's kind of a, a bit of a warning in it. It's that it's entirely possible for a person to process the promises of God in their head without knowing them in their heart. This word knowledge is a tricky word. It's used a lot in Scripture, and so we'll spend some time talking about it. Now, I want to be clear here, before we, before we undertake a journey on knowledge, your mind is the gateway to your heart. God has designed us to kind of work in a certain, certain ways. And our heads, the way we cognitively process information, our hearts, the way we emotionally process, and we use the paradigm here, head, heart, and hands, the way we labor for God, all of these are ways that God communicates to us. They're ways that we, we begin to know who Jesus is. You can't just hear about the way Jesus has served you without really experiencing Jesus by serving others, right? The paradigm is true in every single sense. You can't just hear about the love of Jesus without experiencing it in your heart. And you can't know about the love of Jesus in your heart unless you've read about it and it's gone through your brain. So these three ways that God has designed us to work, they work together with each other. And so when we talk about one in particular, knowledge, the head, we're not trying to in any way um, pit faith against reason, neither is Paul. We're not trying to say there are movements in the modern church planning world today that say, you know, studying about God in the traditional sense is a bad thing. We're not saying any of that. We're just trying to highlight that there's a warning here that if you see your relationship with Jesus simply as information-based, you're going to miss the boat on a lot of things. And in particular, you will miss the boat on the joy Jesus offers you. You won't get it. You won't experience it. Because you can't know something about God. You have to actually know God. And so today, in our world, and we'll, we'll relegate this statement to the Christian world for a few moments, it is very common for people to think that knowing God is just about this acquisition or, or acquiring head knowledge. It's packing facts into our head. And this is in large part due to the fact, it's kind of be, it, it, this is indisputable, what I'm about to say, is that we live in a culture obsessed with consuming information. And this has become uh, very true, like powerfully true over the last century as the advent of the computer and access to information all around the globe. It, it moved us out. I've said this before, kind of looking at the epochs of history. It's taken us out of like the industrial era and moved us into like the information technology era. And with this new era came the, this, this dramatic availability of information and it's changed the way we use knowledge. Total side note, like not in my notes, but I was driving this week listening to the radio I'm at that season in life where I only listen to talk radio, which means I'm like due for a midlife crisis at some point, I guess. If I pull up here next week in a Ferrari I can't afford, you'll know that this is for real. But I'm listening to this talk, right? And, and it's about knowledge. And this is just the great providence of God. I, my sermon's already written, but on Thursday, this thing comes on the radio on NPR. And they were talking about how the inundation of knowledge 
There's only been one other epoch in history where it's been like this. It was in the early part of the Middle Ages where there was almost like a, a, a pre-enlightenment, where there was information that people were beginning to consume. But today, that's like, you know, on steroids. And so what has happened is they talked about there being so much information available in the world that there's a new sociological concern that has developed. It's, it's called, we, I've talked about the fear of missing out when it comes to decision-making in years past here. But they were talking about how now people are beginning to store up information because they're afraid that there's something super important in a piece of information that they need to have filed somewhere so that they don't actually forget about that thing. But what's happening is, is we have so much information in our lives right now that about 55% of what we come in contact with, they said, neurologically speaking, does not syncretize to the brain. So we're hearing all of this stuff and we're searching through podcasts and listening to the news and reading blogs. We're, we're just drowning in information and half of it, I don't know, maybe it's in your bathtub someplace, but it's not in your head. It's changed the way we consume information. That was the point of this, is they were saying the way we learn is very different. And there's a great benefit with knowledge, having accessibility to knowledge like this, but there's also a problem. And obviously, this is a problem in the Christian faith because knowledge of God can become a hobby for some people. It's something that we dabble in but never really marry those truths to our heart and our, our, he- our head and our hearts. So my favorite example of this, this to me is the, the most humorous but also just ground-earth reality of this, the information technology area. Think about all the things now that 20 years ago you had to have a professional to talk about. There were certain things you just had to go hire somebody to do in life. Now, for most of us, we might get to the point of actually having to seek a professional in an area of life, but most of us will actually seek out the kind of information we're looking for through forums like Google or the Internet. And so the the best example of this is the way we we use a doctor today, right? So think about this. Doctors, right, they go to life, uh, they go to school, they dedicate their lives to medicine, uh, they, they go to school, they practice residencies, they're in internships. They spend like 15 years of their life basically training to be a doctor. Then one day they become a doctor. Um, and we spend like 15 minutes on the internet searching about symptoms and we think that we are doctors, right? So it used to be that when you had a bad call for something, you, you would go to the doctor first. Now you start by, by searching information sites about your symptoms, Google or WebMD. And, and some people really take this to an extreme. They, they actually can kind of self-diagnose themselves. And so maybe this is you, like you go to the doctor because you have a chest pain. And you go in and the doctor's like, yeah, you got a pretty nasty chest cold and you need some antibiotics. But you really disagree and you got this stuff printed, right? You put it on the table and you're like, listen, I was at WebMD and I'm convinced I have an incredibly rare heart condition. Uh, and and that this pain is being caused uh, because of a problem in my heart. And I know for sure that I require a specialized surgery where, they re- where you need to go get this really rare electronic heart that's only made in Germany, right? It's only in Germany. And by the way, other pocket, I have a Groupon for it, right? So, so I can get 10 of these in case other people come in here and have this problem, right? And then after your doctor looks at you like you're crazy, you go and you say something like, plus, once we get this thing in, I'm going to perform the surgery on myself because I watched a guy do it on a YouTube video. And he has got like, you know, if you like my heart surgery, click here. And if you don't like it, click there. That's what happens, right? We go in with all this stuff and we kind of have self-diagnosed ourselves. And your doctor's like, just drink some water and take, uh, take some antibiotics and you'll be good in about, about 10 days. This is what it means to have an unlimited access to information. We have an unbridled access to this stuff. And it's a good thing. I'm not knocking information. However, there is a detriment to it. It's created a bit of a byproduct in our society that is not so good. It's created a culture where we are kind of accustomed to gathering information almost as a hobby. And oftentimes, there's the challenge. This was the point of the the radio segment I was listening to, is that we gather it without the point of doing anything with it. So we look stuff up because we're bored. 
So there's literally no subject that you can't get the information you're looking for in life if you're actually looking for it. Good thing. But information for information's sake, this kind of philosophy, it's going to be detrimental if you apply it to how you pursue your relationship with Jesus. It will actually deeply damage a lot of things with the way you love God or attempt to love God. But for the sake of our study, it will neuter your ability to have a relationship of joy with Christ in any kind of circumstance. So how is probably what you're asking, and I'll share a few things with you about how. The bottom line when it comes to knowing, Paul's, you know, knowledge and, uh, and depth of insight is what he's talking about here. God doesn't just want you to consume information about him. He wants you to know and to experience him. So Paul's knowledge has an object. It's, it's insight. We'll get to that in a moment. He's not just saying knowledge. I want you to know God for, to know God. I want you to know God and it leading to something. The experience here is the insight. And this is the thrust of Paul's prayer for us in these verses. So in order to fully understand what Paul is praying for us here, you, you, have to, you have to think about these words in the context of the way he was using them. When Paul was writing the word knowledge here and in other places in the first century, he wasn't writing about knowledge the way we understand it today. He was writing it as a first century, he was a converted Hebrew. So when he wrote knowledge, he was writing that word from the angle of how they understood knowledge. And it was saturated in Hebrew thought. And this, this means, if you want the 10-cent explanation of how Hebrew thought understand, understands knowledge, there's always this deep connection between our knowledge about something leading to an experience with something. And so, for example, think about this, that, that WebMD joke I just made a few minutes ago. While you and I can certainly read about the techniques needed to be a doctor, we can read about every medical condition known to man. We can even read about ways to treat those things. You will never fully experience what it means to be a doctor until you have immersed yourselves in that discipline. Till you've actually spent time drowning in it. And you actually get to the place where you really start treating patients. That's the experiential side of medicine. Until then, those of us that are not doctors, we really don't know medicine. We just know something about medicine, right? You might know about that heart, that pacemaker in Germany, but you don't actually understand everything that's going on with it. The experience of actually intimately being connected to that is different. And this is the distinction Paul wants us to see in our faith. This is the 10-cent version of, of the, 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 the big rock in the jar, if you will. It's prayer for us based on God's desire for us. Okay? This isn't him just saying, I want this for you. He's saying, I want this for you because God wants this for you. His desire for us is that whatever, whenever we learn something about God, who he is, his character, the way he cares for us, his nature, his attributes, the way he serves and cares for people, whatever it is, those things, we should not read them just to read them. We should read them for the sake of them changing the core of our being. At least that's what we should be asking God to do. That takes time. I'm not naive to that. But we should not just read to read. We should, we should know God with the point of him changing us. Now, in this case, he wants us to be deeply defined by his joy, not just to dabble in it. So the evidence of knowing a truth in God's economy, no matter what truth it is, is when you experience the reality of those truths in your life. If you've been with Restoration for the past five and a half years, um, I hope what I'm about to share with you, you have memorized. I'm going to share with you the best illustration ever given to describe this reality, knowledge and experience by the great American pastor and theologian, Jonathan Edwards. And every time I share this with you, I promise you that I'm going to share this with you once, at least once a year. Not because I don't have anything better to say, but because I believe outside of Scripture, there is no greater or profound statement that explains what Paul is talking about here when it comes to knowledge leading to an experience of God. He uses this example of honey to explain it. And he says, it'll be behind me, when speaking of knowing God like Paul teaches us here, which will lead to discernment in a moment, He says, there is a difference between having an opinion, see, we're here now, that God is holy and gracious. It's one thing to to read about that, okay? 
and having a sense in your heart of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. There is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having actually tasted its sweetness. And so the point of Edward's analogy is that it is one thing to be told that what honey tastes like. It's one thing to look it up on the web. It's one thing to read that it's like thick, you know, kind of like oil. You know what oil is. It's yellowish in color. Your mind knows what the color yellow looks like. And it's sweet. You've tasted stuff that is sweet. You have a, a kind of an image of honey. But it's an entirely different thing to actually taste honey, right? You can know about honey, but then you can taste it. And tasting it takes your senses to a different level. The same is true in Christianity. Now think about this. It is one thing to know that in Jesus, God has given you everything you need to have joy in this life. It's one thing to know that he loves you and he cares for you, that he will never leave or forsake you. It is an entirely different thing to actually believe those promises to the point that your heart actually tastes the truth and begins to experience the joy that God promises you in Jesus. Tasting and experiencing. So the bottom line in this is this. The degree to which you know God, this is Paul's statement, is really defined by the degree to which you experience the benefits of his promises, in this case his joy. So to further help us marry these truths, because this is what Paul is about to do, he goes on to pray that we would experience God in a very specific way. He doesn't leave this as an abstract term. He says, now I want you to know that I'd like you to know God and it look like this in your life. It's a diagnostic statement uh, that can help you to really know if you know God in such a way that you're actually tasting the honey of his joy. And this leads us to the second truth we see in Paul's prayer for us this morning. The clear mark of knowing God's love in your heart is when you begin to discern his ways in your life. Philippians 1, 9 through 10, I'll reread it. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Depth of insight is a synonym for discern. So that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Now in verse 10, Paul says that a heart-deep knowledge of God leads to a person, uh, it leads to a person who truly knows what matters most in life. In other words, they know God so well that there's a clear priority structure that develops in their minds and in their hearts. And so what he's saying here is pretty much the literal definition behind what what the word discern means. What is best for us in life is how we discern what God wants for us in life. In other words, he's saying if you want to be truly defined by by Jesus' joy in your life and not the shifting circumstances of your life, if you want to be defined by joy and not the prison cell, The first step is concretely knowing what matters most. An intimate knowledge of God will lead you to understand what matters most in life. And what matters most when it comes to having joy is that you would see the priorities and problems of your life, whether you are on the mountaintop or the valley, because the mountaintop can be deceiving. You think you'll live there forever. And the valley can be a pit of despair because you think you will live there forever. That's not the truth when it comes to this stuff. So that is why it is important for us to understand how God sees these situations. The priorities and problems of your life have to be seen through the eyes and the heart of the one who holds your life in his hands. You've got to put on Jesus' glasses, not your own. And so he's saying genuinely experiencing Jesus' joy is much less about having a happy feeling and much more about acquiring God's perspective in your situation no matter what it is. Now I want you to listen to a quote from a guy named N.T. Wright. He's a well-known and respected pastor, and he's a professor, and he explains this truth like this. He says this. It'll be behind me. First in verse 9, Paul prays that their love will overflow in knowledge and depth of insight or wisdom. This is not perhaps how we often think of love. We think of it as having to do with emotion and affection, which it certainly can be. 
not with knowledge and wisdom. Again, we can see he's chipping away at the, the way Paul was writing about knowledge, not the way we necessarily understand the word today. For Paul, they are all bound up together. What we call the heart and what we call the head, they were not separated as we have sometimes allowed them to be. So if Christian love is to be the genuine article, true love for God, true love for one another, it is bound to work its way out in a knowledge and wisdom which is more than mere book learning. This kind of knowledge is a deep insight into the way God's world truly is. Knowledge open to everyone who is prepared to give themselves wholeheartedly in love to God through King Jesus. So what Wright is saying here is that to truly experience God's love and joy, to truly experience it to the place where you have wisdom and insight, perspective and circumstances, you will likely have to embark on a lifelong exercise of letting God define how you understand the definition and the promised effects of his joy, as opposed to letting the cultural currents of the world we live in define those, worlds, uh, those words and the effects we believe they should have on our life. And I'll give you a good case in point. This will not be the first time we talk about this, but I'll just introduce it today. Joy, which our culture traditionally defines as some sort of bubbling emotionally hap- emotional happiness, the person you're always annoyed with, you're like, can you stop smiling? This is really annoying. Like, stop, please, right? That's how we understand joy. Joy can certainly express itself that way, but if you only believe that is how joy is supposed to look, you are likely going to spend the rest of your days wondering why you are without joy. Because I don't know about you, but the majority of my days do not look like that. Uh, I, I have bad days. I get grumpy, I can get sad, I can get angry. My life swings the emotional palate, and I'm sure yours does too. All that said, it it is possible to have emotions like that, that don't necessarily, you know, look like they should be on the back end of a definition of joy. It's possible to have emotions like that, but to know God in such a way that even when you're not necessarily happy about what is going on in your life, you, you can be joyful. You can have an inner peace that defines the circumstances. The greatest example of this is Paul, his illegitimate imprisonment. He is joyful in a very dire circumstance. He believed joy was real, and he experienced the presence of it in his life during a time when the external circumstance said he should not have. So with that in mind, here is perhaps the ultimate mark that a person truly knows God and is living with Jesus' joy in their lives. Here's one great evidence of it that we'll talk about this morning. This is how we'll wrap up. To know God, like Paul speaks of here, means you are living with the hope of Jesus' eternal love in your life. It means you're living with a future hope. And so the scriptural definition of hope, which is deeply connected to joy, you might almost say that hope and joy like are meant to be together always. They lead to one another. It's, it's when a person has the ability to believe the promise that Jesus has made them. That no matter what you deal with, the reason why Paul has joy right now is because he has a hope, not in a circumstance, but in his Savior. He knows that no matter what happens to him right now, and he'll actually literally say this later on in Philippians, when he goes into this, this place where he's like, you know, uh, I want to be with Jesus because there's like, that's gonna, that excites me greatly, but there's still a lot of work to do on earth, and I want to still be with you, and I'm not sure what to do. He's, he is not thinking about just where he is at. He is thinking about the reality of his future in Christ. And the reason he's doing that is because he has hope. He knows that he, no matter what happens to him, he is going to be kept safe and secure in God's eternal plans and decrees. No matter what you face today, one of the ways you can have joy is by being expectant, expectantly awaiting the fact that Jesus has good things in store for your future. And even, this is going to sound hard, and I don't mean it to sound trite, 
But even in the worst case scenario, where physical illness leads leads to death, I'm not denying the hardship of that. But the reality is that for those in Jesus, there is a next chapter after death. This is where you have to see your life in the eternity of God's, God's providence. So in our world, hope and joy, these things are precious commodities. And this is because the Bible says we were, we were built to be hope-based creatures. We were meant to be people who had hope. And that is why, like so many of the other promises that Jesus gives us, when we disconnect from the promises, in this case when we lose joy because we are hopeless, we go to great lengths to get it back. We try to make sense of why we are without it. The cry uh, to find hope in our culture and in our own lives is big. It's ever-increasing. And I, I have given you cultural examples of, of the, the cry for hope. But I still think one of the best ones that we have today is in popular media. You see it certainly in, in, in movies. But I think you hear it more so, maybe more pointedly, in music. Because while films tell stories, I feel like music is getting to the place today where, where it's becoming more narrative in the way that it's, it's kind of sung. And the narratives are like literally four-minute stories of somebody's life. And so um, this, if, if, uh, if you were ever, if you ever worked with students, I'll never forget this happening. I was a youth pastor for seven years, and I had a student who got really into a band called uh, Blink-182, which I thought was a good band too. And his parents came to me one day and they said, hey, we've been listening to this, my son's music, and I'm a little concerned about this one song. It was a song called Adam's Song. And uh, they asked me to listen to it. They wanted me to kind of review it and give them my take on it. And so the song, much like a lot of, again, it's kind of an interesting, maybe a reverse, where I was talking about how joy oftentimes we, we expect it to be kind of bubbling and happy. But here you had a really energetic, like lively song. And if you were not listening to the words, you would actually not be aware of the incredibly dark matter of the content. It was the story set to a pretty, pretty electric tune of a teenager who committed suicide. And it was his, it was his story about why he was going to do it. And rightfully, the parents were concerned about the potential effect this message uh, could have on their teenager. And so they were asking me about the nature of the music, but also how to deal with it. And so from that day on, I began to pay particular attention to the music my students were listening to. And in doing so, I noticed a growing trend that if you listen to music, you will know still exists today. Many of the most popular songs that we listen to, they deal with incredibly hopeless subjects. They deal with things like broken relationships and abuse and hardship. And it's almost like the way they scream out. It's, it's like the, the counselor is the microphone. And the microphone allows them to vent everything that has gone wrong in their lives. It's, it's a platform to reveal suffering. Now, please hear me. When I say this, um, I'm not trying to say, or the Bible isn't, let me, let me rephrase this. The Bible isn't trying to deny the hopelessness that often comes with pain and hardship in life. This is one of the things I like about the humanity of Philippians. There is no bravado in this book. Uh, I don't think Paul's intent here is, is to try to act like there are various ways in the world that people deal with pain, like telling their stories through song. I would actually say, based on what I just told you, that makes a lot of sense. If we believe people are meant to live in hope, then we should expect, ex- expect to see pressure valves popping when people are without it, and just song is one medium to release that. It makes sense. Because we're creatures of hope, we're trying, to, we're trying to figure out how to get it back. We're trying to make sense of our circumstances. So we all have coping mechanisms for that. And the question I think Paul is more asking here, he's not denying, I think he's more trying to get us to shift our thinking. The question might go like this, like what is the coping mechanism we resort to? And so Paul's prayer for us here is that we would get to the place where we stop coping and start pressing into Jesus for joy. In other words, if you need a traditional coping mechanism, make it be the power and the authority 
of the promises of our Savior. So don't mistake him. I want to be explicitly clear about this. His prayer and this book is not some naive denial about the challenges of life. Rather, he's saying that those in Christ, we really do have the power to look beyond our current circumstances because they're just that. They're temporal circumstances in the context of God's eternal love and plan for our lives. You've got to see today in the context of tomorrow. And frankly, in light of the past, because oftentimes when you look at the way God has worked, it can really change the way you understand the way he's working in your life today. Embedded in this idea is this promise. Knowing what matters most in your circumstances is knowing that there is a great hope in knowing there is much more to your life than just your life, than just this day, than just this season, or your present circumstances. It's knowing that it is okay to say this has been a bad year or a bad season. It's okay to say this has been a season of suffering. That is okay. But you also have to know that you can't end the sentence there. The joy of Jesus says that the day will come when pain fades away. Even if you experience injustice today, the hope of Jesus says the day will come when God makes things right. There's a day that's going to come when the pain goes away. And so you see how you understand Christ's promise of joy and the hope in in your heart for the future significantly affects how you see your life and experience his joy in the present. I'll share one last story with you this morning. And I, I resonated with this story. It's something that happened in 2012 during Hurricane Sandy in New, in New York because my wife and I lived through Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. So hurricane narratives really, they connect with me because I feel like I'm listening to my story on television. But in both situations, they were great examples of, of a dire circumstance really splitting, splitting a line of people. Some had hope and persevered and moved on, and some just fell into you know, an emotional decay and bitterness and hardship developed, and they never, never were able to pull out of that. And so in, in 2012, I watched an interview, this was the week of the hurricane, uh, with, with two people. And, you know, media can kind of be, it, it, can, can, it can really be emotionally disturbing at times, kind of how they press people for information. But nonetheless, they were interviewing people trying to reveal the emotional side of what was going on. And they interviewed two people that had, that had been completely lost everything. So the first person they asked how they were doing, it's kind of a dumb question, and uh, she just kept repeating. You could tell she was saying things, but didn't, I don't even think she was in her body at that moment. But she was just repeating that her house had been destroyed and that she had no food or water, and she kept pleading for somebody to come and help her. But she, she just then would quickly say, but I know that's what I need, we need, but I don't think it's going to happen. Nobody's coming, that we've been waiting and nobody's coming. That is a great example of, of that leads to hopelessness, that leads to joylessness. You, you're just thinking it's you alone in the world and there's nothing. In sharp contrast with that was an interview I saw later on in the day where another person was interviewed and asked the same question. And in a very, in, they were in a very similar situation, lost everything, but they had a very different response because she had just gotten news that the National Guard and the Red Cross were on their way. They were like trekking their way to her city, to her little neighborhood. And with that was going to come relief. And so I, don't, I think it's fair to say she was not any less emotionally distraught, but she was very, very much in a different state of mind because she had hope. She believed that someone was going to make good on a future promise for her life to be, to be better. And this is, I think, the nature of what Paul is talking about here. He's not disavowing the, the present hardship, but he is saying you have, to, you have to see what matters most. You have to understand life through the perspective of God. What he's talking about here is that the, the mark of those who know God is that they know what matters most in life. It's that they live with Christ's hope in their heart because they know that no matter what life brings today, Christ has promised to work it all out for his glory and our future good. And oftentimes how we understand our future good, this is where we get joyless because our expectation of the future good is different than what Jesus is. 
But nonetheless, in this life and the next, no matter what you feel today, you can never forget that Jesus has said he is always and always working out things for the glory of his Father in heaven and the good of our lives on this earth, even when we can't feel that. And that's why it's, it's very fair to say, if you think of your life as like a sailboat, I've used this kind of analogy before, it's always inevitably and inalterably sailing towards the shore of God's goodness in Christ. That is what the, the foundational heart attitude of joy is, knowing Jesus has you and he's taking you to a good place. So listen, Paul isn't trying to paint some otherworldly pie-in-the-sky theology about pain and suffering here. Uh, rather, he wants us to know there's a great hope in knowing that our present circumstances are part of a much greater reality. And this means that whatever you're dealing with today, it will eventually be a blip on the radar of God's eternity. It really is a gracious reminder from God that whenever we disconnect ourselves from uh, our present circumstances from God's hope of eternity in Jesus, we have taken a first-class train to hopelessness. That's where that's ending up. Because when you unplug from Jesus, you lose his perspective. When you lose his perspective, you will have a blurry line in your life on what matters most. And when you stop understanding what matters most, you will head back into that You'll, you'll head into a faulty knowledge paradigm. Ba- depth of insight is based on deeply knowing God, and, and knowing God should produce a depth of insight in us that allows us to have a bearing in these areas. So whether you're wrestling with hopelessness today, or it will be tomorrow, like I said last week, maybe today you're in the mountaintop, but the valley, none of us escape it. Um, ask God to open the eyes of your heart to this reality and watch how it will change your perspective in your current circumstances. Lots of people choose to reject God's grace for various reasons, and this is what we're talking about today. This is a passage about grace. But I never understand why you would want to reject God's grace when you hear about it like this. It it seems like a silly thing to say, no, I really don't want that. I want, like, you know, immutable and unchanging and unassailable peace uh, circumstances. That that sounds terrible to me. I'm not going to deal with that. What Paul gives us today, he prays for us to experience something. And, And my hope is that you would not fall into that mindset of, for whatever reason, not actually experiencing it. Some of us trade Jesus for other gods. Some of us pursue the pathway of, you know, of bankrupt religion. Some of us look towards a faulty morality, or we are swayed by the currents of culture. Whatever it is, do not worship those gods at the expense of the true God. Because if you do that, you're going to miss hearing how God wants to love you and experiencing it. It doesn't make sense, and it will actually keep you from finding the ultimate joy that most of us are looking for in life. And we look to other things for it because they cannot deliver. And so this is why Paul prays that we would find an unrivaled knowledge in God that causes us to truly know what matters most in life. He prays that we would know and deeply experience God's insight so that we can have his joy. So my question to you as we close this morning is a simple one. What are you waiting for? Today, no matter where you are at, ask God for an increased appetite to know and experience him in the way Paul has prayed for us to. Don't just ask to know something about him. Ask for him to reveal to you the way you experience what you know about him. And ask, how that cha- ask him to change your life in that process. As we move into response time, ask yourself, when it comes to knowledge and discernment and the promises of the peace of the gospel and having joy in all circumstances, ask yourself, what is God saying to you about what you do or do not know about him? And what do you, do, what do you intend to do about it? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this day. Thank you again for another passage that I believe is deeply human. In a very positive way, Paul shares with us what we can have in life. And knowing what we can have in life and asking you that you would uh, sustain our ability to actually dwell in those realities 
is also a reminder of what we can lose in life. And so I pray, Lord, as we think about hope and joy, as we really embark on a, on a new journey over these next months in this topic, that you would help us to, in an ever-increasing way, know you more deeply and experience you in light of it. It is our prayer now, God, as we move into response time, as we talk about what it means to be a disciple at Restoration, as we talk about what it means to follow you and pursue you with all of our heart, soul, and mind, that you would truly just make what we have discussed today uh, evident truths on our hearts. Write them, God, on the tablets of our hearts. Make, do as you have been doing for millennia through the power of your Holy Spirit. Make the connection between what we hear with our minds and move it, God, to the place where it defines who we are in the core of our being in our souls and our hearts. In the name of Jesus, we pray this morning. Amen.